0: And the rest of us, we're going to gather around uh, Mark. Again, we have two weeks left in Mark's gospel. So if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you, encourage you to to open up to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 40 through 47 this morning. And as you're turning uh, to Mark 15, I just want to give you a bit of an idea of where we are uh, or what's going on in this text that we're going to be looking at. Uh, what's going to be going on in next week's, next week's text as well as we finish up next week in Mark's, uh, at the end of Mark's Gospel. So last week, I mentioned that we were looking at what I called the climax of Mark's Gospel. Remember how Mark starts his Gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He kind of gives us the purpose of what he's, he's trying to accomplish, what he's writing for when he says this. This is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here's his purpose, the reason why he's writing his gospel is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And throughout this gospel, he's given us signs, he's given us evidence of that being the case. We hear that demonic legions, they cry out that Jesus is the Son of God. They confess who he is. And yet, all the way through Mark uh, 1 through 15, we have not heard that confession from the lips of a human being until we get to the cross. As Jesus is hanging on the cross and as he dies, this is what happens. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So at Jesus' death, It is a pagan soldier who finally makes the confession that no one else in Mark's gospel has made. He confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. But not only does he confess that Jesus is the Son of God, he does that in connection with the cross. This is why Mark 15, 37 through 39, is the climax of Mark's gospel. He is saying that the key to faith The key to being a part of of the kingdom of God is to do exactly what the centurion does. And the centurion confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, but that confession isn't just some sort of intellectual assent. This declaration is made in conjunction with the cross, with what Jesus has done for us as a substitution for us, that He is our ransom on the cross. It is throwing your mercy, or throwing your life on the mercy of Jesus. Jesus. And that's what we looked at last week. This week is what we're, uh, we're building, to. Uh, we're, we're, we're going to build off of that. Last week, if that was the climax of Mark's gospel, this week, next week, as we finish up, is, a, is for lack of a better term, it's like the epilogue of Mark's gospel. In other words, this is how we live in response to what this centurion just confessed. Mark has made his point he has confessed that Jesus is the ransom for many, that he is the son of God. If you would enter into his kingdom, then you have to confess that Jesus is the son of God. And now he shifts his focus from building a case toward that truth to give us two quick stories of how people respond to that truth, of how people respond to the message of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done. For Mark, the historical events Of the burial of Jesus, what we're gonna look at this week, and the resurrection of Jesus, what we'll look at next week, are important, but in a way they serve as the background for a question that each and every one of us have to answer, that each and every one of us have to wrestle with, and that is how are we going to respond to Jesus? Personalize that. How am I going to respond to Jesus? This man who died as a ransom for many, this man who is the Son of God on the cross, how am I going to respond to who he is? I want us to take the next two weeks and look at that, because that's what Mark does. Mark gives us two paths to how we are going to respond to who Jesus is. This week, we're going to look at Joseph of Arimathea, we're going to look at these women, Next week, we're going to look at those women again, and we're going to ask ourselves, how how do I respond to the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is? This morning, we've talked a number of times about Mark's favorite kind of structure, if you will. Uh, Mark loves sandwiches. He he sandwiches uh, stories together a lot. Mark will start with a story, and he'll begin that story, and then he'll pause it, and then he'll jump to a second story— And he'll bring that to a completion, and then he goes back to that first story. And, And we're supposed to read these stories in connection with one another. This morning, Mark starts with these women who are watching the crucifixion from a distance. And then after that, he goes to the story of Joseph of Arimathea and the burial of Jesus, and then he goes back to this story of these women who are not just watching the crucifixion, the death of Jesus at a distance, but now they're watching the burial of Jesus uh, from a distance. And we should read these in connection to one another. Help us to understand each in in relationship to the other. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be Mark 15, as I mentioned, but we're going to pray before we jump into this passage. So would you pray with me? Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit would be with us this morning. We ask that you would help us to not only hear the words of this passage, but that you would enable each and every one of us to respond to this passage. Help us to be a people that, that read this text and ask the question, to think of, what does this mean for me? How am I going to respond to the truth of who you are? Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 47. We're going to read the whole text together uh, at first, and then we're going to uh, break this apart and look at it line by line. So please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate's And asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud. And taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This text begins with a startling revelation that Jesus' crucifixion is not just observed by the centurion who is standing before Jesus. That's the, the language that Mark uses in verse 39. He's standing right in front of Jesus. He also tells us that it is observed by some women. Those women have followed Jesus from the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, Notice this contrast between the centurion right in front of Jesus, stood facing him, highlights his proximity to Jesus, while these women, they are watching from a, dis- uh, from a distance. That doesn't mean that Mark is being critical of these women. It's possible that he's just saying that these women are watching from a distance because of social uh, guide- uh, guidelines. I'm so used to saying guidelines. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, because of social expectations, cultural expectations of the day, uh, instead of being critical, uh, he's, he's actually just referring to, to the reality that these women, they would not have been allowed to be close to Jesus. In fact, the fact that they are watching from a distance is better than anyone else of Jesus' disciples. Everyone else has abandoned Jesus, that we saw that at the end of Mark chapter 14. And yet these women are here, and they are watching from a distance— Remember what Jesus told his followers all the way back in, in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, he says that if anyone, who would, if anyone would want to follow him, they must pick up their cross and then they can follow him. This is a, an invitation that is open to anyone and to everyone. It doesn't matter if you are man or woman. And these women, they take Jesus at his word. They, they take this invitation seriously. They begin to follow him. They follow him all the way to Jerusalem. Now they have followed him to the cross. Every other one of Jesus' disciples has followed, fallen away, except for these women. They remain until the end. Now, more on those women in a moment. We're going to jump into to Joseph of Arimathea. Mark translation, uh, transitions to this burial of Jesus. He introduces us to a new character, someone we haven't met before, Joseph of Arimathea. First, Mark sets the stage in verse 42. And when evening had come... Since it was the day of preparation, that is the Sabbath, the day before the Sabbath. Okay, Um, so so we're just going to pause there. Recall that Jesus has died on a Friday. The most important day of the week for the Jewish people was the Sabbath. The Sabbath started at sundown on Friday and went till sundown on Saturday. Sabbath observation was extremely strict. This is one of the things that got Jesus in a lot of trouble in his ministry. The people of of Israel were not supposed to work at all on the Sabbath. And so many people in Israel interpreted that as uh, extremely literally. Uh, If you did something even as small as lighting a candle, then you were doing work on the Sabbath. And so there was a lot of preparation that had to be done on the day before the Sabbath to get ready for life on the Sabbath. This is why it's called the day of preparation. Now, on this particular Friday, that meant a great deal of work had to be done in the very short amount of time between when Jesus died at 3 p.m. and when the sun went down around 6 p.m. Jewish law stressed that anyone who died should be buried on the same day as their death, especially if they died on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 22, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death— And he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So here's the timetable that Mark is is giving to us Jesus dies at 3 p.m. on a Friday. Jewish law says that he has to be buried on that same day. Sabbath is just a few short hours away. And once it began, you wouldn't be able to do any work. And so there is this emphasis, this urgency in this moment, an effort to honor Jesus' body while the Sabbath is just around the corner. That's where Joseph of Arimathea steps in. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So here we're introduced to Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew tells us that joseph is a secret disciple of jesus john says something similar notice what we learn of joseph from this one verse here in mark first we see that he is a respected member of the council this council is the sanhedrin the council that condemned jesus to death that handed him over to pilate this is shocking Leads to a number of questions for us, questions we don't have the answer to. Was was Joseph there at the beginning of Mark chapter 15? There at the end of Mark chapter 14, where there's this trial that is taking place? If he was there, did he go along with the verdict? And if so, how can he be a disciple of Jesus? Or did he become a Christian after the trial? We don't know these questions. I look forward to asking him someday. Mark doesn't answer those questions for us. All we we are told is that this is a man of status. If you were a part of the Sanhedrin, then you had a lot of authority. You were a person of status. We also know that he is a wealthy person from other parts of, of the Bible. And this is a man who's a part of the group that sentenced Jesus to death. And yet, even there, in the center of this council, Jesus has a disciple. He also tells us here, Mark tells us that that he is looking for the kingdom of God. This is a big theme in Mark's gospel. Consider the first words of Jesus as he's beginning his earthly ministry, all the way back in Mark chapter 1. This is what he says, his ministry is all about. He says this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here is Mark And he is making this connection between the longing of Joseph's heart. Joseph longs for the kingdom of God with who Jesus is, the the one who brings the kingdom of God through his sacrificial death. Joseph longs for the kingdom of God. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. So just like Matthew, Mark is telling us that Joseph is Jesus' disciple. He is someone who has been praying for, he has been longing for the long-awaited kingdom of God. And when he was exposed to the person who is bringing that kingdom, he responds in faith. He responds with courage as we are about to see. This man who is a part of the group that is the center of the opposition to Jesus. Mark tells us that he takes courage and goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. This is a profound statement. Let's consider the context here. Roman crucifixions served many purposes. In addition to execution, they were also meant as a deterrent. A few weeks ago, we saw that crucifixions were often done along heavily trafficked roads so that who, those people who were passing by the road would see. The, the crucifixion of, of anyone who would dare to defy Rome, and then they would be, they, they would be encouraged to not do that exact same thing. Another way that the Romans would use crucifixions as a deterrent to the nations, to keep them subservient to them, was actually to leave the bodies of crucified people on the cross until they began to rot. Now, it was possible to ask a Roman governor for the release of the body of a crucified person, but it was a risk. For starters, only a family member would be someone who would make that request. But by asking for the body of a crucified man, you were voluntarily associating yourself with someone who had been killed because of sedition against Rome. In other words... By asking for the body of Jesus and by not being Jesus's family, Joseph is putting his own life at risk here. He is making public his allegiance that he does not belong to the kingdom of this world, but instead that he longs for the kingdom of God. No wonder Mark tells us that Joseph took courage and goes to Pilate. The actual phrase here is to dare. I love that picture. The the ESV translation is a little wooden. We don't say we take courage, but I think that's an appropriate one as well because courage is something that you latch onto. This is a man who has to dare, to risk, to go to Pilate in order to ask for Jesus's body. Mark is showing us this internal struggle of Joseph in this moment. He knows the risk He knows the danger of going to Pilate. He knows that this could end in his death. But in that moment, he has a decision to make. In that moment, he can can choose to ignore Jesus. He might know everything about the kingdom of God, but he could choose to ignore Jesus. He could be silent and refuse to act. Or his faith might lead him to dare, might lead him to to risk, might cause him to seize courage, and his faith will compel him to action. In April 1934, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a German pastor, and, and uh, World War II hadn't begun at this point, but it was, it was progressing toward that. And there were a number of, of uh, ways that the Nazi party had begun to take over the German church at that time. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's writing to to Christians throughout Europe about the the struggle that is facing the church in Germany. And, and he he says some some really powerful words. Uh, I just want to uh, read to you an excerpt from one of his letters. A decision must be made at some point. It's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble, but to procrastinate. Simply because you're afraid of erring when others, and I mean our brethren in Germany, must make infinitely more difficult decisions every day seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. I want us to consider Joseph of Arimathea and the decision that is facing him in light of that last sentence to delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. See, here is Joseph of Arimathea. He is faced with a decision. He can remain silent. He can refuse to act. He can remain in the background, or he can take a risk that will possibly cost him everything. And whatever he decides in this moment is going to show his allegiance. It is going to show the character of his faith. If he follows Jesus, it means that he is going to pick up everything and, and nail it to the cross and follow him. Or he can remain silent. He can remain inactive. And he can escape. But again, it will show his allegiance in that moment. I think all too often we fail to see that the call of obedience to the gospel is a call to courage. We have, I think, believed in this myth that following Jesus may cost us much, but if I were just a better Christian, whatever that means, then the idea of of taking risks to take on this cost would be easier for me because it would just come naturally. But that's not what we see here from Joseph of Arimathea. Mark doesn't tell us that Joseph just acted because that was what was natural. It tells us that he had to take courage, that he had to dare to let the implications of following Jesus shape his actions, even if that led to his death. What an incredible and challenging picture of faith in this moment, a man who who sees the reality of who Jesus is and says, it is worth throwing everything, everything I have in company with him, even though it might cost me everything, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Do you see how Joseph stands as a sterling example here in this text of how we should respond? To the good news of Jesus. Joseph's actions, they put flesh on the words of Jesus that if anyone would follow him, they have to surrender everything. And we have to ask ourselves, will we, like Joseph, be willing to dare? Willing to, to risk? Because that's what our faith calls us to. And this isn't something that we, we wait for. As though if, if I were just a little bit more mature in my faith, then this would come more naturally to me, and so I'll just put off that decision until tomorrow. But today, to dare to follow Jesus. What happens as a result? Mark tells us, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. So in God's providence, this does not lead to Joseph's death. Crucifixion was a long, painful process, and and it would oftentimes take days. And so when Pilate hears of this, he's he's less concerned about releasing the body, and he's more just surprised that this has already happened. The fact that Jesus has died just six hours after his crucifixion needs verified by Pilate. And so Pilate sends the centurion or sends for the centurion and asks him the centurion confirms this news. Notice it's not the main point here in Mark. But Mark is being very clear about the historicity of Jesus' death. The women witness the death of Jesus in verses 40 and 41. Joseph testifies to the death of Jesus in verse 43. The centurion testifies to the death of Jesus in verse 45. By extension, Pilate testifies to the death of Jesus. And then Jesus' body is referred to as a corpse, a unique word here that's only used to refer to a dead body. Mark wants to make very clear to us that Jesus' death is not made up. It's not as though Jesus were unconscious and he just hid out in the tomb for a couple days and then he, once he was feeling better, he got out. No, he's telling us this is a verified fact. Verse 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud and, taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So Joseph takes this body, he quickly pre- prepares it for burial, he places it in his family tomb. The text doesn't tell us it is his family tomb, but based off of the context, the description here, this is a tomb that is large enough to enter, a large enough tomb that is sealed by a stone. It would have been something that only a wealthy family would have been able to afford. And here we see this parallel with, with Joseph and this faith that is costly. It's all the way back in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, this woman who anoints Jesus for his burial spends tens of thousands of dollars in her entire future on Jesus to anoint him for burial, and Joseph now is doing the same. He's offering up his burial location for Jesus because of his faith. True faith will cost us everything, but it is the joyful path to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Joseph was longing for. And the text ends with this parallel with how it started. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Just as these women were the only disciples at the cross, verses 40 through 41, now they are the only disciples to observe the burial of Jesus. Why this emphasis here on these women? It's an example of their courage too, isn't it? That their faith, just like the faith of Joseph of Arimathea, is costly. It means that they dare to follow Jesus even at great risk to themselves, at great cost to themselves. Here they observe the location of Jesus' burial for a purpose. They knew that Jesus was not given the the proper burial that he deserved and so they marked where he was buried so that they could come back after the Sabbath was over and to, uh, to anoint his body properly. Their faith is costly and their faith is causing them to risk. Their faith causes them, compels them to dare to declare their allegiance to Jesus not to hide in fear. And as we come to the end of this text, that question is thrown upon us, isn't it? This question from the faith of these women and the faith of Joseph of Arimathea, their faith that compels them to risk everything in order to follow Jesus, it asks us what about me? Will my faith compel me to courage, to dare, to risk, to lose everything for the sake of Jesus? The focus of this text is is really clear. True faith is courageous because of the cross. True faith is courageous because of the cross. In some mysterious way, these women, their courage is linked to the fact that they are standing there at the cross. In some mysterious way, Joseph, this man, who longed for the kingdom of God, he saw Jesus realized that he is the one who is going to bring the kingdom of God and realize that he was worth risking everything for. True faith is courageous because of the cross. I love the way that um, David Platt puts it in the introduction to um, John Piper's book, Risk is Right. He says this, This is the picture of Jesus in the gospel. He is something, he is someone worth losing everything for. When we really believe this, then risking everything we are and everything we have to know and obey Christ is no longer a matter of sacrifice. It's just common sense. To let go of the pursuits, possessions, pleasures, safety, security of this world in order to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what it costs, is not sacrificial as much as it is smart. Or to use the quote of Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Where did the courage of these women come from? The answer is found in verse 40. They were looking at the cross. Where did the courage of Joseph come from? The answer is found in the longing of verse 43. He's longing for Jesus, the one who will bring the kingdom of God. True faith is courageous because of the cross. And as we come to a close, can we just ask ourselves that same question? Can we ask ourselves ourselves, reflect upon our own lives our own faith and ask does my faith cause me to dare does it cause me to risk does it cause me does it lead me to take courage in obedience to the gospel for some of us we we need to to dare to listen to the convictions of the gospel. We know that we are ignoring certain commands in the Bible about what it means for us to follow Jesus. We know that there are certain areas of our lives that don't line up with what Jesus asks of his people. Will we dare to be obedient? Will we dare to follow Jesus? Will we take courage to declare our allegiance to Jesus, not just in a segment of our life, but in all of our lives? For others, will we take courage to live out our mission as the people of God? Here at Crosswinds, we want to be about reaching people with Jesus. That's not profound. It's profoundly biblical. Great Commission, Jesus says the exact same thing. He gives this mission to the entire church. I want you to make disciples of all nations. Does our faith cause us to dare to step out, to risk, to take courage, to live out the mission that Jesus has given to his people for the last thousands of years. This is our charge. Are we willing to follow in the footsteps of these women, to follow in the footsteps of Joseph of Arimathea, allow our allegiance to Jesus to be known, to co-workers, to neighbors, to friends, to family members who don't know Jesus. To be willing to be known as the person who invites people to church, who tells them about Jesus. True faith is courageous because of the cross. John's gospel gives us some insight into the faith journey of Joseph. It says this, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews. At some point in his life, true faith meant that he stopped being a secret disciple because of fear, and he publicly declared through his actions who he belonged to. What about you? Are you a a secret disciple of Jesus because of fear, daring to follow Jesus publicly because what other people might think of you? Would you take that step to dare, to risk, to take courage and reach people with Jesus, to surrender your entire life to him? The centurion at long last declares who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son of God. How will you respond? Will you cower in silence? Or will you take courage from the cross? Let's pray. Lord, I I confess that... um, Well, every Sunday you you use scripture to convict me in the week before a sermon. That's particularly true in this passage. I look at my own life and I can see all too often that I don't take courage, that I don't dare, that I don't risk, It's really easy for me to do that on a Sunday. But it's not as easy during the week in interactions with friends and and neighbors and those that you have sovereignly and providentially just allowed my path to cross. I ask for forgiveness for that, God, and and I imagine I'm not alone here in this room watching at home. Help us to see that faith leads to courage to declare our allegiance because of what you have done for us. Help us to be a people who risk, who dare, because of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray.